Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lost Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. Today is Tuesday, November 30th, 2010, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALRPRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Our primary activities are law firm public relations, marketing, and credentialing. We also offer a wide variety of practice management services to help you with all the back-end business of managing a law firm. Today, we have four panelists from the Illinois Institute of Collaborative Law who are going to appear and coach our listening audience on how collaborative law practice works and when a client-centered approach to dispute resolution is beneficial to the parties. I will quickly read the bios of today's panelists. First, we have Charles King Perkins. King Perkins became a certified financial planner cert, uh, certificate in 1991. He is a member of the FPA, which is the Financial Planning Association, a member of NAPFA, which is the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, and earned a designation of NAPFA Registered Financial Advisor. After receiving specialized training in the specific financial and tax issues of divorce, he earned the designation of Financial Divorce Specialist and Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, CDFA. King is a fellow of the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals and is the president of the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois. Previously, he served for one year as president-elect and for two years as treasurer of CLII. Between 2003 and 2005, he was on the Midwest Regional Board of NAPFA, and he served on the nominating committee of NAPFA in 2008. Before starting his fee-only financial planning practice in 2000, King spent over 30 years in banking with First Chicago. Our second panelist today is Dr. Kale Petrich. Uh, Dr. Gail Petrich is an attorney and psychologist. Dr. Petrich is especially equipped to promote emotional safety and support families in making decisions for their futures after divorce. Gail has many roles in collaboration and litigation. She's an attorney, uh, attorney, mediator, divorce coach, child specialist, parent coordinator, and communication specialist. Dr. Petrick is experienced in child custody evaluations, high conflict personalities, and high crisis management, and uses these skills to develop with and work with families, work out parenting plans, and settle financial disputes. Using her solution focus and creative problem solving, she has worked in family law over 15 years, in therapy and family therapy and mediation over 12 years. Thirdly, we have Sandra Crawford. For the past 20 years, Sandra has dedicated her legal practice to educating and leading clients to the clearest path for peaceful resolution of their unique issues. Sandra helps distressed families and others move out of conflict by using the most appropriate legal dispute resolution model, be that 
the collaborative practice model, mediation, arbitration, or litigation. Sanders serves on the nonprofit board of the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois and is an immediate past president of that organization. Sandra is an Illinois State Bar Association Assembly member and chair of the ISBA Women in Law Committee. Sandra was named the Illinois Super Lawyer in 2009 and 2010. And finally, last but certainly not least, we have Teresa Baron Coulot. I also apologize if I've butchered any names here. Teresa, as a collaborative lawyer, has helped many families in transition to generate solutions and reach agreements that address the multifaceted needs of all parties involved, including children, husbands, wives, and other family members. She works at a practical level to help clients reach satisfying resolution of issues, even in extremely complex and contentious situations. She graduated from cum laude from John Carroll University in 1984 and cum laude from the University of Illinois College of Law in 1992. Teresa serves as the leader of the West Suburban Practice Group of the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois. She is a member of the International Association of Collaborative Professionals and the Global Collaborative Law Council, the International Alliance of Holistic Lawyers, the Illinois State Bar Association, the DuPage County Bar Association, and the Chicago Bar Association. So, we do have a great show for you this afternoon. We always invite your questions either by email directly at nick, N-I-C-K, at A-L-R-P-R-A.com. Please include Law Talk Radio in your subject line. And please also feel free to call in during the show at area code 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the queue. The telephone number, again, is 917-889-9732. We do have a couple uh, announcements for you quickly today. First, from the Collaborative Law Institute, on January 25, 2011, from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., and with a reception to follow from 5 to 6, there's an MCLE seminar at the Chicago Bar Association located at 321 Plymouth Court here in Chicago. The uh, information for that is available at www.chicagobar.org. The presentation is entitled Collaborative Law, Expanding Your Practice with This Limited Scope Model. The seminar will cover the history, mechanics, ethics, and the shift in communication style needed to practice in this new and developed area of conflict resolution. Discussions will cover the application of the collaborative practice model in family law and non-family law cases and the necessary steps practitioners must take to retool their practices to provide collaborative practice options to clients. Secondly, we have an announcement that ALRPRA, uh, our organization, announced on Monday, November 15th, that this coming January 5th, classes start at the new law Practice Management School. This weekly online law practice management education program covers management, marketing, technology, and finance. For more information and to apply, please contact ALRPRA directly for more information. By way of disclaimer, before we are going today, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on the show does not constitute legal advice. The results may vary and are based on specific facts and location. Communication with our attorney guests and among guests and callers on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. And if you have further questions, you're always encouraged to consult with an attorney and or professional in your area. Finally, all callers do remain confidential, and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Now, before we introduce and get going with our guests, I'll just give you a general description of today's subject matter. Collaborative law is a dispute resolution model based on three core principles, a pledge not to go to court, an honest exchange of information, and a solution that takes into account the highest priorities and goals of all of the parties. The panelists will identify the members of a collaborative law team and explain how professionals divide and counsel in their areas of training. 
This programming is designed to bring you a global view of the collaborative law model, and a link for more information is available at www.collablawil.org. So again, it's Collab Law Ill, C-O-L-L-A-B-L-A-W-I-L.org. So our segments today, we'll first start with what is the purpose and design of the collaborative model to dispute resolution. After the break, we'll talk about our second segment, which is who are the professionals and who make up the collaborative law team and what are their respective roles. Third, we will talk about what are the best applications of the collaborative law model and why. Finally, we'll discuss how the collaborative law model is different from traditional mediation, arbitration, and litigation. So without further ado, we'd like to go and introduce our panel. Thank you, panel, for being present today. Thank you for having me. And who would like to go first in discussing the purpose and design of the collaborative law model approach to dispute resolution? All right. I think I'll take on that, that task next Stanford. I am an attorney here in Chicago, so uh, my perspective is from that of an attorney. I'm also a, um, a mediator. I have been since the, the mid-'90s. Um, the purpose uh, of any dispute resolution model is to bring parties to, to um, resolution of their particular unique issues. The particular design of the collaborative um, model is one of inclusion of a team. Um, all problems have many facets, legal, financial, emotional, or just three of the major facets of any um, dispute a family or a a couple would bring to um, collaborative professionals. Um, so the purpose of, uh, of the collaborative model is to help those um, in conflict reach conflict. peaceful and sustaining outcomes. Um, the design is that of a, um, an interdisciplinary team, the appropriate team members to um, address the particular issues, legal professionals, lawyers, like Teresa and myself, to address the um, legal aspects, um, mental health professionals such as Dr. Gail Petrich to address the emotional aspects, um, the communications aspects, and then financial professionals like um, our financial neutral King Perkins to help couples and disputing parties resolve their financial issues. So each of the professionals work um, to the best of their training and their abilities and skills. So as far as Purpose is to reach peaceful resolution. Design is that of a team approach where all of the team members are using their best um, skills to help a couple or a disputing parties reach that solution. And if I may, this is Teresa, say that um, one of the defining elements that makes a case a collaborative case versus a just traditional two lawyers trying to settle the case um, is that when a Couples, in this case, we're going to talk about family law primarily because collaborative started in the family law arena, although it applies in other areas. Um, the parties decide up front to use this model because the lawyers have made a commitment that they're only going to represent the parties for purposes of settlement. Um, <clears throat> the, at the beginning of the case, the parties and the attorneys sign a document. It has different names, but generally we call it the participation agreement that includes something called a disqualification clause. And it's essentially saying everybody is committing from the beginning to settle the case and no one is going to take any aspect of the case outside of the discussions to have a judge or an outsider make a decision. And I, I
say this because some people out there are saying they do collaborative cases or let's let's work collaboratively, but unless everyone makes that commitment up front and they sign a participation agreement, it's not a collaborative case. So um, that's really an essential element to the process. And as Sandra said, uh, we aspire to have more team members involved, um, but the most important thing is that the people sitting at the table are committed to working together, settlement only. I have a question, Teresa. What happens if one of the litigants decides that they want to break that agreement, the participation agreement? What happens then? Well, let me first correct your language there, Nick. You call them litigants. Ah. Okay. Uh, when we work with people, they're not litigants. They're parties. They're humans. They have issues. So they don't become a litigant until somebody files uh, something in court. And the collaborative process generally takes place outside of the court system, so no one is established as a litigant. Um, and, you know, if anybody else wants to jump in, um, I've worked on many cases, and sometimes the couple or the parties are actually not well suited to collaboration. And sometimes people are dissatisfied with the process, and they can choose to remove themselves with the pro from the process. And I think that's really important that it's a voluntary process, that if, if any point in time a party is not feeling that their needs are being met or they're being heard, um, we encourage them to talk to their lawyers first because hopefully a skilled collaborative lawyer can then make adjustments to what's happening in the meetings or happening with uh, the other attorney or the allied professionals and help get those needs met. But it does happen sometimes. Okay. Who else wants to chime in on the purpose and goals of this model and why it's different and unique? I'm, I, well, I'd like to uh, you know, talk about the things that some people out there who don't know a lot about this model um, may be persuaded to a closer look. Well, um, one of the biggest assets, I believe, of the model is that it's a client-centered approach. Um, the clients actually, um, and with the help of coaches, of course, and mental health people, are able to set their own goals for the process, um, decide how they want this divorce to go uh, with the help of their team. But the whole notion is that um, they're, they're prepared to come in and give complete and full disclosure in that process and that they can stay focused on the real stakeholders of the process, which from a psychologist's perspective are the children. And that's very, very often why people are choosing this process is uh, for the protection of the children and for the well-being. And they're literally planning goals for what these two families will look like for the future. Mm -hmm. Very important difference. Thank you for pointing those out, Gail. One of the things that uh, someone mentioned to me is the advantage of not having things, as you said, litigated in court and not initially having people's uh, dirty laundry, so to speak, made public record. Would someone like to comment on that? Oh, certainly. The, the collaborative process is completely private. So um, when we begin a case, as Gail said, people are talking about their goals and what are they trying to achieve. But then the next phase goes into in information gathering, and King will talk a little bit more about the finances. But because no pleadings are filed in court, there's no formal discovery, everything stays within the team. And that's the easy financial piece, but also extramarital affairs or um, mental health issues, addictions, um, those types of things just get more ugly if they're aired in public and they're spun out of control. Where in our model, 
those particular issues are seen as as a challenge that we need we as a team need to help the family work through. So it's not aired out in to, to strangers. It's really kept within the team context. And the thing that I'm and thank you very much, Teresa, for that comment. And the, the thing that I'm seeing is uh, there's a difference here as to the traditional. Um, road of going to court where it's always important for the divorce lawyer who's in the driver's seat, so to speak, and who won this motion, who uh, filed the uh, the initial order of protection and got possession of the marital residence. All this uh, gamesmanship seems to really be avoided, and the focus really is on the best interests of the children and the parties. So that's what I'm hearing. And just to recap, some of the things that I've taken from this first segment are that you have a good team approach, and everyone works and designs team uh, to, to really best focus on everybody's needs. Secondly, uh, to set and manage expectations on, on the front end. Those are the two important uh, things. Is there a third key or anything else that I'm missing? Well, the keys for the professionals initially is we are all trained in a collaborative process model, um, be it the financial people, the mental health, or, or the lawyers. We all um, submit ourselves to a two-day basic training in collaboration and in order to make the shift from the traditional gladiator lawyer to peacemaker, problem solver lawyer, um, we also here in Illinois strongly recommend mediation skills training for professionals and or communication skills training, which is a you know, higher level of training than just, just having your, your initial professional degree, be it a JD for the lawyers or a CDFP for the financials or a psychology degree or a PhD for the mental health professionals. So a precursor to all the work we do as a professional team is we have a common language from our mediation skills training and from our collaborative training that allows us as professionals. And that really is the distinction between professionals who say, oh, I always resolve my cases or, oh, I can act collaboratively, is collaborative in this context is a big C, big P, collaborative practice is a model of dispute resolution. It's not just a way of operating. It's not just a, um, a negotiation um, ty type of negotiation. It is a model. It has um, strict guidelines. There's also an ABA ethics opinion, which was produced in 2007, which governs um, professionals and how they act in a collaborative process, be that they um, attorneys or allied, what we call the allied professionals, which are coaches, child specialists, or financial neutral. Thank you so much for that comment, Sandra. Um, I think that wraps our first segment. So, so much, uh, so much to gain from the collaborative process. I really like it. Let's pause now, and then we'll come back in our second segment. We'll talk to King uh, and find out a little bit more about the different professionals who make up the collaborative law team to continue on with Sandra's comments. For anyone who's just recently tuning in, you are listening to the Consumer's Law Journal on ALR PRA's Law Talk Radio. Of course, we always appreciate our, our questions from our audience at area code 917-889-9732. Please press option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, and now we're thinking about marketing law for a moment, 
think about the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm, serving national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. You can find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's business page, you will receive periodic blog updates with recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Another second sponsor we have today is the lawyer market, and I discovered the lawyer market several weeks ago, and let me tell you, honestly, this website is one of the best-kept secrets for solo practitioners and small firms trying to market their practices. You can join the lawyer market for free, and the online marketplace will actually send you the name and contact information of consumers who are interested in hiring your legal services. The lawyer marketplace offers a win-win solution to anyone trying to build a practice and increase their call volume. And the solution is listed to its listed attorneys and potential clients who are actually searching for legal services in those practice areas. So again, please visit thelawyermarket.com forward slash lawyers for more information. That website again is www.thelawyermarket.com forward slash lawyers. Now back to our program, we're going to go into our second segment here, talk a little bit about the professionals who make up the collaborative law team and what their respective roles may be. We're first going to start with talking to King here about financial uh, assistance and the financial goings on. King, take it away. Thank you, Nick. Um, the financial neutral is just that. They are the neutral on the team, and they are right in the middle. It's their job to really keep this case going, keep the case moving. And they're going to they're going to start by first getting to know the couple and taking them through three steps. The first step is education, the second is scenario development, and the third is financial resolution. Now during the education, uh, it's it's some I'm not an attorney, so I can't tell you it's like discovery, but it, it takes the place of discovery in, in the collaborative practice. But what we're doing here is we're bringing the assets and the liabilities in and putting them on the table and making sure that both parties completely understand exactly what is out here to be negotiated for. Uh, so that both parties have knowledge, knowledge is power, so it's really the job of the financial to make sure that both parties are completely aware of what their financial situation today is because they're going to change it. They've decided on a lifestyle change. So after we have this, we're going to start to talk about budgets and really learn budgeting. Some people know budgeting pretty well. Others need a lot of help. But we're going to get the budgets down because, you know, there was there's a certain amount of income, and now it's going to be divided two ways, and we've got to keep the interest of the children going all the time. And that's where we start the budgeting process is with the budget of the child. That's a place we can all start to agree. We understand a lot more what's, what that's going to take. And then we go out and we start to develop two separate households. And with the two separate households, this is a way of the couple saying goodbye to the past and hello to the future as they're designing their new financial life. Very good. It, uh, one, too often, and, and of course I, I come out of family law myself before making a career transition myself, and uh, too often it was the battle of the financial experts. Uh, whoever the, the higher income earning spouse would be able to pay money for an expert to uh, stand by their positions in the distribution of marital assets and such. How is that here where the collaborative model, it sounds like you've got one person. So uh, is there any independent review of any of the financials by any of the parties involved? 
Well, the the each each party has their attorney and has their coach, mm -hmm. and quite often these these decisions are all out on the table for everyone to sit and look at and talk about. But you're right, the financial does have a, has almost a fiduciary obligation here. They have an obligation of fairness, and uh, that's that's really the job here. Is, is when you're talking about being in the litigated side, I've done some of that myself. Uh, we cannot let anything get slanted. We've got to make sure that we're coming towards the best decision for everyone. Okay. Good on financial. Our next, uh, who's our next key professional? Who'd like to take that one? Well, um, I'd like to start by just introducing the fact that the, the, the ideal team consists of um, two attorneys. Of course, the clients are primary on the team. Um, the father and mother or husband and wife, and then each has an attorney. And in an ideal case, each also has a divorce coach. Um, and then the financial neutral is one of the um, neutral parties. The other neutral party is the child specialist. So, um, And because I'm a psychologist, I'd like to um, address a little bit about what the coach's role is and then a little bit about what the child specialist's role is. Thank you, Gail. Okay. Um, the, the coach um, is always a licensed mental health professional. Um, and what they enable the clients to do is to stay focused on their goals for the future despite the pain and stress that they're feeling about all of these changing roles. So we do provide a lot of support. Instead of um, acting as if the emotional issues don't exist, we actually use them for the benefit of our clients. And we, we help them um, um, face the new realities that they have going down the pike um, and begin understanding the bigger picture instead of their own pain and their own suffering. Um, I think as a child specialist, um, um, we um, work with the family to begin understanding the impact of divorce on children. We, we talk with them a lot about how it's, um, the developmental um, issues that the kids have, how it's impacting different kids at different ages, uh, what, what good parenting plans look like, um, and we also um, interview the children if necessary, screen them, uh, figure out what needs are present in the process. So those two roles become very crucial, I think, in the whole divorce process. Okay. From our other guests and panel guests, Sandra or Teresa, do you have any comments to make on the collaborative law team and the respective roles? Well, the role of the attorney shifts um, somewhat in a collaborative process because in a collaborative process, you are kind of the the general contractor helping the clients um, put together the team that they most need. Um, not all cases have children in it. I have a lot of uh, couples that I've taken through collaboration, um, cases with Teresa where the couples don't have children, so that's not their particular concern. So in that case, we wouldn't have a child specialist. However, even if there's not children involved, the financial and the emotional issues, if it's a long or short-term marriage, can be just as devastating. Um, there can be addiction issues. There can be uh, mental health issues. So definitely the, the, the lawyer together, the collaborative lawyers, talking with the clients and talking together and talking in four ways as to what needs are going to surface and what combinations of professionals we need to put together, be that two coaches, Sometimes there is a model that we use that has one coach that's a process coach, what we call a communications um, coach that we bring to the table, and definitely where there's, you know, in, in, even if, if there's not enough resources, there are financial issues, more so sometimes when there aren't 
a lot of resources to go around. Um, we bring in the financial neutral to, to do some um, modeling and option generating for us so that, that the couple can transition. Our goal as the attorneys, because we're resolution specialists, that's what, and, and I know that's a little bit controversial because we can't use the word specialist and attorney in the same sentence in Illinois um, under our ethics rule, but what we, what we strive to do is have the couple have the best resolution for their unique family circumstances and we're there to support that um, resolution as opposed to um, getting them to be positional and fight over the pie. We get them with the help of the other professionals to take down the tension level with the professional help of the, the coaches and then to talk um, strategically about their financial future so they don't end up worse after the divorce than they were during the marriage. And it's wonderful in the collaborative process when you have a collaborative counterpart counsel, and Teresa and I have had many cases together, um, when you develop a relationship where we both know that we as professionals are committed to being peacemakers and problem solvers, and we're not um, committed to pitting our clients against each other and fighting over um, scarce resources. Because unfortunately, in that battle over scarce resources, um, the attorneys become part of the problem, not part of the solution. And as a result, I think our profession has suffered because um, the dynamics within the litigation process um, have us pitting our clients against each other using tactics that may not necessarily bring people to their, their higher selves or their goals. Would you agree, Teresa? I would totally agree. And I, I would say I've also observed another interesting phenomenon that I'd just like to share with possibly some listeners, and that is um, sometimes clients or couples, they know that it's time to separate their ways, and they're, they are communicating. They're actually not out to get each other. Um, and those people tend to search out collaborative lawyers because they want lawyers who are going to help them facilitate the process and do it easily. And to those people, I just would say, you know, we are here with open arms and we want to help those people, but you also have to know that you're hiring lawyers to help you get divorced. So I've had some collaborative cases recently where husband and wife hire their collaborative lawyers and then they go back to their their homes and they work everything out and then they get upset when the lawyers want to know, well, can you please show us the statements and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have to get involved. And so I just point out that the lawyers are actually part of the team and it's our job to help the parties understand and, and as King said, it, it's about education and so long a lot of these couples have been living together and trusting one another and I say to my clients, you're allowed to still love your spouse after you get divorced. And we don't want to dis dismantle that, but we also have to make sure that you are getting the right information and that we do come up with an agreement that is fair and that is legally uh, permissible. In, in one case, I had a, a couple where uh, the husband had a state pension and they wanted to do certain divisions that really are just not allowed in the law. So then it was our job to come up with, okay, what are you trying to achieve and how can we do that? So I would just say that the lawyer's role, you don't get to just toss this aside. We actually are part of the process, um, but we're not primary. The clients are primary and we're secondary. Teresa, thank you. And what that sort of reminds me of is, is more, more like the role of an in-house counsel in, in a sense when you work in, in, a, in a corporate setting where the goal is to really get 
to where you want to end up, um, and the uh, all the other pieces are sort of shunned from that. We do have a caller. I want to uh, say hello to our caller. It's Jim Thompson, our our friend who is also our our upcoming sponsor for our next break. Jim, did you want to say hello? Do you have any quick questions that we can address in our third or fourth segment? Uh, yeah, Nick, I do. Uh, that's been a very interesting um, discussion. Um, and after after you start into the third and fourth sections, I, I do have a number of questions I'd like to ask. Really quick, Jim, really quick, Jim Thompson is a retired attorney. He was a trial attorney for about 30 years and now works with attorneys uh, in marketing, and he's a marketing coach. Go ahead, Jim, your questions? And we'll uh, answer them I have after a the couple break. questions. you want to take the break first, or you want me to ask uh, you a couple we, questions? Why don't you give me the questions quickly, and then after the break, uh, I'll let our panel uh, shoot to answer your questions. Okay. Well, one of the questions I have is, can collaboration be used in a post-judgment situation um, where, where the parties have gotten a divorce and then there's problems after the, uh, as far as enforcement of the settlement agreement? Is this something that All can right. be done um, after that? Um, and then... One of the big questions I have is how does a party, because when I, I practice in a different state, uh, obviously, than, than Illinois, one of the questions, I, we, we did not have the collaborative law when I was practicing, but how does one go about finding collaborative lawyers, uh, lawyers that will take a collaborative case from the standpoint of uh, two parties know that they want to get divorced, and most most divorces that I was ever involved in were uncontested divorces to, until they got to the the issue of property and uh, property rights and property division and, and child support, et cetera, et cetera. Um, exactly. So how do how does one find uh, lawyers that will do the collaboration? Uh, one of the questions I had from is also uh, when you are uh, at, you know you, you're in the litigation standpoint. Uh, you have the discovery process, and you can get subpoena, you can get records and documents, et cetera. How do uh, you know that everybody is playing fair when uh, I come along and I say, here are my financials, and uh, the, the, the husband comes along and says, here are his financials, and, and most likely, uh, as most cases are, the husband may have you know, so, some hidden assets elsewhere. How do you actually get to those without a discovery process? Certainly. Those are great, Jim. Those are great questions, and we're going to pause quickly for our second uh, sponsor and commercial break, and then we'll be back with our panel, who will talk a little bit about the best applications of the collaborative law model and why. And then our panel will answer uh, a re retired attorney Jim Thompson's questions. Again, for anyone recently tuning in, you are listening to the Consumer's Law Journal on AOR PRA's Law Talk Radio. As always, our telephone number is area code 917-889-9732, option 1 for the caller queue. Quickly, our, our news update in the world of law today uh, comes from the AMLAW Daily. Again, you can always get the AMLAW Daily's website at AMLAW, well, just Google search AMLAW Daily. Today's news of interest was the report from the December 2000 issue of the American Lawyer, the AMLAW 200 is out. Law, the title is Law Firm Leaders Survey 2010, The New Normal, posted by Claire Zillman from December 2010 issue of the American Lawyer. Text, after two years of turmoil, the nation's largest law firms settling, are settling into a new normal. That's the takeaway from the American Lawyer's 2010 survey of the leaders of AMLAW 200 firms, which suggests that many of the changes implemented during the recession, i.e. smaller associate classes, postponed start dates for new hires 
buyers, reductions in the equity pool, and scaled back profit expectations are here to stay, at least for a while. 60% of the 124 respondents to the law firm leader's survey said that the downturn has produced a fundamental shift in the legal marketplace. A smaller proportion, 32%, said the downturn had caused their firm to adjust its business model. The most jarring example of this change is in the area of leverage. Clearly, the days of ever-expanding first-year classes are a thing of the past. More than 87% of the respondents said that the 2011 incoming class will be the same size or smaller than usually reduced 2010 class. Find a complete result of these surveys on the AMLAW's daily website as well as initial news and resources. Our a sponsor for the second uh, segment of our show is Jim Thompson, uh, our caller actually. His program is called Get Clients Now. He's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach, and if you want to get clients now, he's the guy to talk to. Jim Thompson's program called Get Clients Now will help you take the crucial steps towards increasing your firm's revenues. The Get Clients Now program employs various time-honored techniques to help you attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is going to be a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox show, that's our Thursday show, regarding attorney marketing. To learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net and also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. You can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by, call, by visiting MidwestConsultants.net or by calling into the show at area code 917-889-9732. Now back to our panel. Before we answer Attorney Thompson's questions, we're just going to go through uh, first and identify the best applications of the collaborative law model and why. Teresa, it looks like you want to field this one. Yeah, and actually I'd like to pick up on what you just said in terms of the uh, statement that there have been adjustments to the business model. And what essentially collaborative practice is, is limited scope representation. And that's one of the new trends in the legal marketplace. So I, in particular, have all of my retainer agreements say that I am hired for settlement purposes only. So, it's, so segueing to the question, which is what is the right application for collaborative law, it would be cases where the parties are interested in settling. So, for example, uh, Mr. Thompson's question was, can collaborative practice apply in a post-judgment situation? The answer to that question is yes, if the parties are interested in settling. So that, that's kind of going to always be the underlying answer here. So family law, it, it grew out of um, a man named Stu Webb, who was a family law practitioner in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And the point there is there's relationships. There's people who have more invested than just dollars and cents. There, there are people who are going to have to go to a wedding 10 years down the line, or they, they're going to have to raise grandchildren together. So what I say is that the results in a collaborative case go beyond the balance sheet. You know, King and the financial people, they help us look at the numbers, but they're, they're wise financial people in that we're looking at the implications of the money, not just the dollars and the cents. So to answer the question, it applies very poignantly in family law situations, but it's also applicable in other disputes where relationships are important. So, for example, um, probate and estate work. So when you have a family where there's an adult, adult children who now have to deal with aging parents, um, or we have an issue of incompetency where you want to have to be able to say, let's not fight over whether or not 
which sibling is going to be the have power of attorney. Let's sit and work these things out together. Um, also, family businesses. So we are wanting a situation where the relationships in the business are also recognized rather than just the money. Um, that's another area where the collaborative practice model does apply. Um, healthcare, medical error situations, there are certain people across the country who are spearheading the movement of using this model when a dispute comes up, uh, when there's an allegation that somebody has done something incorrectly in the hospital. So I've got uh, personal interest in this and have been developing the employment area. If you have an ongoing employment relationship, the last thing you want is for people to be fighting it out in court. Um, one of the, the you kind of used a, a similar analogy. When, when a dispute is inside the workplace, it's a business issue. It's not a legal issue. It's not until somebody goes out and files a pleading or files a complaint that then the lawyers get a hold of it and it takes on a life of its own. So collaborative lawyers are interested in keeping the dispute out of court and in the hands of the people who really need to need resolution. So, um, and I would just, you know, when we talk about future applications, um, the civil area has taken them off in other parts of the country, and there are lots of ways to reach out and meet people who are doing it. Very good. Thank you for the answer to Jim's first question. Who wants to field Jim's second question and repeat it first? I will do that. Thank it you, was, Sandra. How do you find collaborative lawyers? Um, and it goes to, to, to um, Teresa's segment also about um, collaborative lawyers of every stripe, be they family lawyers or civil, um, non-family civil lawyers. And the best place to go, um, um, Nick, is www.collaborativepractice.com. That is the um, website for the international community of collaborative lawyers. There's about 4,000 lawyers worldwide now. The model has People, um, professionals have trained in about 17 countries. Um, I believe in, in, in all 50 states, you will find them usually in the most populated areas. Um, you will find collaborative lawyers, but it is a really strong network. Um, we um, practice together. We've grown up together. We educate together. We have a wonderful um, international movement. Um, you know, that, that's very strong. So anywhere in the country um, you need a collaborative lawyer, just call your local collaborative lawyer and they'll get you to um, somebody in your area. Um, but that's www.collaborativepractice.com. Quick question before we hop to the third uh, question that Jim Thompson posed. Uh, my question is, what happens if you have parties who want to get divorced? Let's say for a hypothetical, one party that received a job out of state and this, this, you know, discussions about how the family, you know, what happens when one party is already in another state? Actually, I've done a case like that. Um, that's the beauty of collaborative practice. Um, in, in my particular case, the wife and husband were here, the husband relocated, and I was able to get on the IACP website and find a collaborative attorney out there. He moved to New Mexico, Arizona, and I continued to be his attorney, and we just did conference calls. Okay. Um, so that's the nice thing about collaborative. So you can do that. That's so good to know. Sandra, you were going to start to field our third question, and Jim was going to, uh, yes. King was going <laughs> to. About, about discovery and litigation and right. how do we solve, um, how do we solve the problem of people who don't want to disclose information? In the collaborative model from, from the get-go, from the, the minute a client comes in to, to, uh, to have a consultation with a collaborative attorney, we talk about full and fair disclosure and 
um, openness and the benefits of, of getting all the information on the table and how if somebody is concerned about non-disclosure, how our financial um, professionals can help with that because sometimes it's not so much about what's being hidden, it's about what's not known, the unknown. And in a collaborative environment, um, under the terms of the participation agreement, the parties, the professionals all commit to full and fair disclosure, and that's where if it's a financial concern, the financial neutral can take it from there, and I'll let King speak to that. Our financial neutral, King, tell us. Well, when uh, in the participation agreement, which is what you sign when you start the, this, this whole process, the, it's, a, it's a statement that one of the things is that everything will be disclosed. Now, does that mean everything is always disclosed? Well, no, it doesn't. But when a neutral starts to come across something that doesn't add up, first thing you do is always go back to the team. And you go back to the team and say, we collectively have a problem. And we need to know more about this or we think that. And we come to a collective uh, decision uh, on how we're going to proceed. And uh, it could be that that's the end of the collaborative case if we really believe that something's being hidden out there. And what happens then if it's at the, well, again, when we have a breakdown of our agreement and it's ended the collaborative case? Um, are parties sort of left holding the bag? What happens? They have the choice then to, to hire, to, to go to litigation. And the, the reality is in the, in the area of hidden assets, if somebody is really going to not disclose, they're probably going to lie and cheat in a court of law. And the, the concern about, you know, yes, there's, there's penalties for perjury, but how often are those penalties actually invoked and the sanctions really, if somebody is of the mindset to, to, to not disclose. In the collaborative process, um, that could be, you know, there could be psychological reasons why, why somebody is not disclosing, and that's why it's helpful to have um, mental health professionals who can help us with what's the emotional concern. Because sometimes, you know, the legal, the financial, and the emotional all get jammed together, and the financial and the emotional are sometimes so interwoven, it's difficult for professionals to sort out is this really a financial issue? Is it an emotional issue? Is it an impairment issue? Do we have somebody not disclosing possibly because they've been gambling or, you know, now more frequently than ever because they've been on the, um, you know, the, the Internet porno sites and they've run up huge bills? Um, these things will come to light. I, I, you know, the concern, I think, is always raised for what, if, you know, what if um, you know, somebody won't disclose, but I would submit you know, in a litigation process, if somebody's going to lie and they're, they're about that purpose, they've probably hidden the asset so well, it's probably, you know, in cash, in, you know, on, in a trunk under a bed somewhere, <laughs> and you're not going to be able to track it. But the financial people are pretty good at tracking one of their their um, their jobs is kind of follow the trail if that's what the team needs. And, and go I ahead. Think, I think another important part about all of this is the team is able to create a safe and secure environment and they actually begin trusting people in the whole process. So they believe that what they may have wanted to hide, they no longer have a need to hide. Because we're able to talk to them about the psychology of the money and the psychology of 
what's going to happen to the family afterwards. So it gives them a different attitude about about their assets completely. Now that's a good transition into our third commercial break. Before we respond, uh, come back to our final segment where we'll talk about how remind you how the collaborative law model is different from uh, traditional mediation, arbitration, and litigation. And when we talk about financial financial issues and uh, assets, again in the collaborative practice model, the idea is that everyone's working together as a team. However, in many cases that doesn't happen. And for those of you who are not in a collaborative model and are dealing with some issues that stem with financial and we're transitioning into credit here, our, third, our sponsor, George Finder, is a good person to know. George Finder is an expert who can put a dollar amount on damage to credit. George Finder is one of the only credit damage experts in the country, and attorneys and plaintiffs who have retained his service have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas, such as personal injury, employment law, family, and general civil litigation. By learning how to incorporate credit damage questions into your intake process, you and your staff will learn to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. Right now, any of our listeners who contact George Finder and tell them they heard about him on Law Talk Radio will receive, free of charge, one hour of CLE presentation. So grab a pen and take down this email address to respond to this offer. The email address, and it's plural, is creditdamageassociates at gmx.com. Again, creditdamageassociates at gmx.com. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder's website of resources. Please visit creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and his expert services. You can also watch a nice video on there where George will lead you through the process. We want to again remind any listeners who want to call in for our final segment of the show, area code number 917-889-9732, option one to be placed in the queue. Before we get to our final segment, we want to go through our list of finance or law practice management resources. First on the list, we have the American Bar Association, and the website is w www.ababooks.org. So again, ababooks.org. The title of the day is About Google for Lawyers, the Essential Search Tips and Productivity Tools. In the decades since its launch, Google has become synonymous with searching on the Internet. This book unleashes the full power of Google as a search engine and provider of, low free, of free and low-cost tools that can help any attorney compete with large firms and their large research and technology budgets. The Google Essential for Lawyers, Essential Search Tips and Productivity Tools, introduces novice Internet searchers to the diverse collection of information locatable through Google. This book discusses the importance of including effective Google searching as a part of a lawyer's due diligence and cites case law that mandates that lawyers should use Google and other resources available on the Internet where applicable. For immediate and advanced users, the book unlocks the power of various advanced search strategies and hidden search features they might not be aware of. So again, the title is About Google for Lawyers, Essential Search Tips and Productivity Tools. Our second law practice management resource of the day is the Attorneys in Transition blog. This is a little self-promoting on my part because I'm one of the weekly columnists. This week's title is going to be called A Time to Give Thanks for Your Law Degree. So in the spirit of Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about all the wonderful things that we have when we possess a law degree, and we'll talk about uh, some of the things that you can do with that. So do look for my column. That should be out later this week. Third, we want to, again, talk about the Law Practice Management School, ALRPRA, 
Wednesday's online course that's one one every Wednesday from six to seven PM. Classes start January fifth and uh the uh the cost for enrollment is much less than any other law school. It's five hundred dollars for a twelve week course. So five hundred dollars for twelve weeks of instruction and of course uh all of the courses are uh, saved immediately in a Windows Media player format. So if you miss a course, don't worry. We can send it to you and have your assistant or receptionist uh, ingest some of the information to help you get going. So again, we're now going to go back to our, our program today uh, to our panelists from the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois. And for our fourth and final segment, we're going to talk a little bit about reminders of why the collaborative practice model is different from traditional mediation, arbitration, and litigation. Panel? Okay. Um, this is Gail, and I'm a mediator um, often in cases. Um, I'd like to contrast it first with um, mediation. Um, there's, in mediation, there's a single neutral person um, who may be a lawyer or a mental health professional, um, and they actually help the clients um, reach an agreement, but they cannot give legal advice. So at the end of that mediated agreement, the parties still need lawyers to con complete their process, and the lawyers, after the mediation is all completed, may disagree with the outcomes of mediation. It comes back to the mediator. Um, so it can be um, an efficient process, but it can also be uh, lead to a less uh, client-driven process. Um, a lot of people say to us, well, I do a lot of settlement. Why is this different from settlement? And what I usually say to my clients is settlement happens on the courthouse steps, on the way into court. Unfortunately, after all the money has been spent on depositions and interrogatories, um, I believe that lawyers often prime their clients for what they think the judge will will accept as opposed to what the clients really want. That's a huge difference in settlements. And I believe too that um, we can be much um, we can be less costly, even though we have a panel, a, a whole uh, team of folks, because um, I think we're allowing the professionals to do what they do best. And because we are able to bill, uh, the, the allied professionals are able to bill at a lower rate, and we believe, for example, as divorce coaches, that we are actually facilitating the process in dramatic ways so that it can be much more cost-effective than, um, than the litigated process. So those are some highlights. Maybe others have some other comments they would like to add to that. Well, the major difference, this is Daniel Crawford, the major difference between a collaborative process and a litigation process is in a collaborative process, we only go to court one time to prove it up when all of the agreements are reached, all of the negotiations have been done, all of the, the, the disclosures have been uh, made, and all of the emotions have been tended to, and all of the financial aspects have been uh, explored. In a litigation process, you're right there, you know, from the beginning, taking positions, becoming positional, becoming um, probably further apart than you started, as as um, Teresa observed. In some cases, sometimes it's you know it's the the old uh, um, adage about you know the um, the cure killing the client, you know killing the patient. In litigation, sometimes you know the remedy um, really is, is damaging to the client. Where in collaboration, we start off with the perspective of how can we preserve the parts of this relationship that need to be preserved in terms of you know, with, with when there's children, in terms of uh, raising children, where there's assets to be divided, and especially in this 
economy where houses are not selling, property values are, are decreasing when people have to hang on to, to the primary residence because that's a source of, of their wealth um, to ride out the storm. People need to preserve their relationships. So the um, difference between a collaborative model and a litigated model, I say, within the perspective of we're in the businesses of, of attorneys of helping people preserve the, the parts of their relationship that will help them be successful in their new futures. Um, I like kind of picking up on that. Just to clarify, in case we have consumers who aren't really lawyers um, listening to the program, you know, in litigation, you're, each party is hiring lawyers, and the lawyer's job really is to convince a judge that their particular party is right. So the parties are two steps away from the decision-making. In other words, the judge is making the decisions, and the lawyers are talking to the judge, and the parties only get to talk to their lawyers. So the decision-maker is very far away from the actual dis people who have the disputed hand. The next model we could talk about is arbitration. Now, again, you have a third-party dis decision-maker. It's an arbitrator. It's not a judge. But again, it's not the people who have to live the life that this problem, whether it's an employment dispute, whether it's a medical problem or a family problem, it, it's t taking it a step away. Um, in, in settlement lawyering, the lawyers are still involved. In mediation, and this is where we're kind of going to jump to the other side, in a mediated case, the mediator's job is to have the parties talk to each other. So collaboration, I believe, is sort of a, it's in between those two things where you don't, you don't really, if you're a party and you're not really comfortable sitting in a room with your spouse or, you know, your employer, let's say you're a, a woman who feels that her employer, the manager is harassing her. She doesn't want to sit in that room alone with the harasser and mediate it because she doesn't feel that there's a, a, a power balance and yet she doesn't want to fight it because she doesn't want it to turn into World War III. So a collaborative lawyer can actually, collaborative lawyers sit in the room with the two parties to help normalize and equalize the power imbalance. I'd also like to point out another important difference, and I'll use this theoretical sexual harassment case because before I went to family law, I did some sexual harassment training and work with them. I, I represented employers. And <clears throat> in... In the EEOC, the Human Rights Department, they're limited as to their remedies that they can give out, whether they're monetary damages or uh, injunctions, whatever. In a collaborative case, people can be very creative. And so one of the examples is an employer who had a, a problem with one of his managers who was harassing the females. Well, the woman, female number one, was so scared and intimidated, she didn't want to say anything about it. So woman number two had the guts to bring it to her employer's attention, and that party, woman number two, actually engaged in a collaborative process. The employer kept it out of the EEOC, kept it out of the, you know, the limelight, kept it out of the press, but one of the things that woman number two wanted was, was help for woman number one. And again, in a court setting, the court could not reach beyond the parties. And in this case, it was really not about money. It was about having a safe work environment. So they were able to put together an, an employment plan that helped both women and got a better result and kept peace and really was good PR for the company, too. So it, it collaborative can go beyond what 
a typical litigated case can go. I would like to give some examples of how collaboration could go beyond litigation Thank you, Gail. in the family context. Thanks. Um, one would be um, very often we have extended family issues that clearly do not get addressed in court, and we can address some of those. Um, adult children is a huge uh, problem that the courts don't even touch. They may talk about college tuition, and that's all. So we get to work with those kids um, because in many ways those are the kids that are hardest hit by the divorce. Um, that's what the research is showing us. We can also um, uh, come up with very um, creative solutions for substance abuse, parenting time, and, and make you know assure all of ourselves on the team that the children will be safe in that context and that the children don't have to be completely cut off in the same way that the court might do. So um, we can just be a lot more focused on the strengths of the parties as opposed to all the negative that often comes out in the litigation process. Mm -hmm. King, do you have any comments to add ne uh, on our final section? Nick? Uh, yes, we have it's it's Caller, go ahead. Malini Bayana. Hi, everyone. Um, I Hi, wanted Malini. to mention all of my collaborative colleagues. I've been listening to them for the past hour. I am a collaborative lawyer and mediator. Um, and co-chair of the Community Outreach Committee. And one of the things that's little known about CLII and all of the panelists today is that they're uh, very philanthropic as well. And I wanted to um, mention that Gail, Sandra, King, and also Teresa have been very supportive of a new pro bono project that my co-chair and her subcommittee, Jennifer Fletchall, um, has planned and will soon be implementing and which was, has been a long-term goal of CLII since I was on the board years ago. And thanks to the leadership, it's coming to fruition. The um, other piece of it is we are in the process of planning a diversity training that will support the pro bono project um, with also some volunteers from Lotus Rising Foundation. So I, I just wanted to let the listeners know, um, you know, we are all professionals and, and we're in this business, um, not only to serve the communities, but also to um, serve the underserved populations. And we're also seeking to increase the diversity in terms of our professionals in, in all fields and hope that some of the listeners out there will encourage um, those of, of diverse ethnic, r religious, and, and um, national backgrounds to become a collaborative law professional. So, 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 one wonderful, kind comments. Thank you so much for calling in, Melanie. And I want to ask you a question, as well as the rest of our panel. And this question sort of goes out to uh, anyone who's working in the family law field right now and is facing some of the challenges that go along with litigation and the traditional models of of divorcing families and helping families work through uh, visitation, financial, uh, custody, and other issues. Uh, for the attorneys out there who may not know much about the collaborative law model, can you uh, give, give us a little insight into what you would tell that lawyer who is honestly looking to jump to another practice area because they uh, have a very hard time with the litigious nature um, and the sense that you're ripping people limb from limb um, and, and the expense and everything else involved, everything really that gives family law a bad name. If there's a practitioner out there who's experiencing that, what would your short advice, and then we'll have to end the show, um, unless we have more callers with questions, but what would your advice be to that practitioner? I, I'll well, take that one. 
to start off, um, I would say if you look in terms of numbers, 95% of all of the cases filed in Cook County at least, and these are some statistics that come out of the Chief Judge's Office, 95% of all cases that are filed end in a marital settlement agreement. So only 5% of cases roughly go to trial. So those 5% of cases are really dictating what the whole system has in terms of, of, of resolutions. So if 95% of cases settle after 18 to 24 months of litigation, I would ask practitioners especially to think long and hard about how they, they take that number and start from the day that they meet their client talking about what resolution is, how they can get resolution, what their goals. And I think most people, when pushed, will say their goals are for a fast and, and inexpensive and non-horrific process. And I think I would like to be challenged on that, but I've been practicing 20 years, and most of my clients, the minute they come in, in their first you know, questions are how long and how, you know, and how much. I'll leave it at that. I would have to say uh, Nick, that. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, Nick, could I jump in here? Um, and I want to make a couple of comments, real quick comments. I uh, I was a trial lawyer for over 26 years, and 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 I quite frankly wish back then they would have had a, a collaborative type uh, process for other issues. Uh, you you hit it on. I don't know who mentioned this, but what clients want is a reasonable resolution to their problems done quickly. I've seen so many divorces that started out somewhat. You know, people were friendly when they started out, and they just tore families apart. And uh, I would do anything I could, quite frankly, to, to uh, uh, see that people got to collaborative lawyers. And that, that's why I'm going to, you know, that's why I wanted to know how you found out, because I have people all the time asking me, you know, who recommend divorce lawyers and things of that nature. And I'll tell you what, from sure, listening sure. to what you folks have said, uh, you know, th this is just going to be my total recommendation Um uh, it's just Wonderful. I, I think, a fantastic way to do it. Jim, let's we're gonna we're gonna hit quick here from Gail and then I think Melanie had a comment. We're gonna see if anyone else has final comments and then wrap it up. I, I would have to say that um this it has been a very, very, very fulfilling role. Um I used to practice law and I now am a divorce coach primarily and a child specialist. And um our clients are coming to us very wounded and very, very vulnerable. And we're able to really, in this process, send them away a lot stronger, with a lot better perspective, and they're actually still caring about one another when they leave our office, which is dramatically different from my years of litigation, dramatically. Okay, do you have a final comment? I have one final comment here, and, and I just really want to underline uh, something that my uh, young associate and I call the Eureka moment. And this this is really, uh, this, this starts to really help when you're going through the divorce process, when you when you watch the person who has not had the experience with finance finally really get it and then be able to take control of his or her life, his or her outcome, and that's kind of when the financial backs away from the situation. I love it. <laughs> Teresa, Melanie, you wanted to make a final comment? Yeah, I, I really appreciated what Gail had to say um, in terms of, you know, the end result of, of people leaving the process in, with healthy relationships, and I think all too often litigators, when they say, "Well, I'm serving the best interest of my client and 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 asserting his or her needs," it's in my opinion, it's never in the best interest of a client when you further erode 
the parent or spousal relationship, um, the trust, and and any ability moving forward to communicate and work together, and particularly where children are involved. So really you're doing your client a disservice when you are uh, getting adversarial and um, hostile and litigious. So I would say the collaborative model is an optimal model to amend and heal families as they're transitioning. Well, and then my final comment was, you know, how do you find people? Uh, if you're in the Chicago and the Illinois area, again, the Collaborative Law Institute of Illinois, and the website there is www.collablawill.org, as Nick mentioned. And anywhere else in the country, in the world, uh, collaborativepractice.com, the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals. And whether you're a person who's thinking of maybe getting divorced, talk to these people. And if you're a professional who wants to shift their practice, just reach out. We're a very nice, accommodating, helpful group of people. You should see them all staring at me down. No, they're, real, they're all very, very kind. Before we wrap it up, we want to say some thank yous and talk about some upcoming events. I first want to thank our panel. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our callers out there. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. Okay. I'd also like to thank our listeners, always, for tuning into the Lawyers Toolbox Show on ALRPRA's Law Talk Radio. Thank you all to our sponsors. Number one, the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Two, the Lawyer Market. Three, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group. And four, credit damage expert George Finder. We want to tell you about two upcoming shows quickly. First, on Thursday, December 2nd, that's this week, on the Lawyers Toolbox at 3 o'clock Central, we'll have attorney Donna Adler, who will be on the show to talk about U-Visas what employers should know about U visas and which can be issued to victims of certain crimes uh, receiving temporary legal status and work eligibility in the U.S. So again, Donna Adler talking about U visas uh, in the world of immigration on Thursday, December 2nd at 3 p.m. Also, uh, this coming Saturday, we have a very special broadcast to bring you. Um, not special because Saturday is my birthday and, of course, uh, you can send your gift uh, to our address on the website. Um, but, but in quite all seriousness, we have our expert, cro crocodilian and reptile expert, Mr. Terry Cullen, will appear to share his lifelong work in wildlife research, research and conservation, and he will also share his very chilling story about bogus criminal charges made against him, which put his current life and work in great peril. We do ask that you tune in and learn about Terry Cullen's efforts in wildlife conservation and research. Again, this gentleman is one of the top individuals in the, in the world, in the globe, when it comes to certain species of crocodiles and reptiles. We're looking for uh, tremendous outreach to help correct uh, the authorities in another state who may have the charges against Mr. Cullen actually very wrong. So very important show to bring you on December 4th. It is going to be at 11 o'clock in the morning, so 11 a.m. Central Time, Saturday, December 4th, Terry Cullen, crocodilian and reptile expert, to share his stories of his lifelong conservation efforts. Thank you for tuning into that show. Finally, by way of disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may be, will vary and based on specific facts and location. 
communication with our attorney guests among guests and callers on this show does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship. If you have further questions, you're always encouraged to consult with an attorney and or professional in your area. Finally, all callers do remain confidential and all rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. These Law Talk Radio broadcasts are programmed to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area information they can use not only to be better practitioners, but also better consumers of legal services. With guests and listeners located nationwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. As always, this is Nick Augustine for ALR PRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.